We are today starting a series called Singleness and the Kingdom of God. And I will admit that I, I really do hate the word single. I know we're going to be using that word. I will be using that word in the series. But I do not like this word at all because I think it's categorically unfair to call people single because that word means to be alone. Like literally look it up in the dictionary. Single. Only one in number. <laughs> one only. Of relating to or suitable for one person only. Solitary or soul, lone. <laughs> Literally, the definition of single is to be alone. And the colloquial word single in our culture means to be unsomething. To be single means to be unmarried. I mean, basically, what single means is you are not something. You are not married. You are unmarried. You would never think of a married person as unsingle. You're like, I'm unsingle right now. And it's always singleness that seems to be wanting and deficient. And I think that's my biggest beef with singleness as a way to describe someone. It seems to mean that you don't have something. Which is why when I tried to harness the power of social media for good this past week, I turned to IG and asked, single people, what do you want the church to know about being single? And many people let me know what I should tell you about being single. Very thankful for all those who helped me. Um, but the majority of people said this. People kept asking me, is there a theme in what people say? Yeah, there's a, there was a theme. And this is the theme that most single people wrote to me and said, please let the church know that we are not a lesser form of being human. Please tell them that being single is not a failure, that you're not incomplete, that your life is not, quote, on hold until you get married. So that's what they want you to know. There you go. And they say a lot of other stuff that we might get to later in the series. Now, I will use the word single in this series, sadly, because I don't have a better word to use, which is a bummer. I wish I can use a word like fabulous or focused or holy, and it would all describe this thing I'm talking about. But it doesn't. Like, single is the word, and that's where we're at. Now, there are both great things about being single, and there are very painful realities for the people that live the single life. And they often exist in the same people in different times. I'll dive into both of those realities today. But before we do, I would like to name the cultural water that we're swimming in. I think this is really important to name the cultural water that we kind of all swim in, the air that we all breathe, the culture that we're all immersed in. I think it's important when we talk about social realities like singleness and dating and marriage and sexuality to name some of the ways our culture shapes our pain and our expectations. We are socially programmed to act and react in certain ways when it comes to singleness, marriage, and sexuality. And it's imperative that we name that. That's important. So what I'm going to basically do right here in this little section is I'm going to name why it's so hard to be single right now. And I'll try to do that by trying to paint our cultural moment for you. So first of all, this is what you have to understand. We are a, if you're a part of the church, we are a church culture within a larger culture. So we're like a culture in a culture. We're a church that has its own life and culture, and we're submerged into a larger culture called society or um, uh, the world or whatever you want to call it. Now, let me first talk about church culture. There seems in church culture, we seem to idolize the idea of marriage. 
The evangelical leader and pastor John MacArthur said at a conference of biblical manhood and womanhood, he said this, quote, let me tell you the most devastating attack on marriage is coming from singleness. Singleness is an assault on marriage. Marriage is the grace of life. This escalating self-preoccupation, personal ambition, personal development that creates a kind of terminal singleness is devastating on obviously the family. I just see singleness as a disaster. Now, that, I will admit, is really bad teaching. <laughs> Maybe his aim was more at individualism and he hit singleness. Aimed at individualism, that makes sense. Aimed at singleness, it's completely unbiblical. The church, but my point is this, the church idolizes marriage, period. People are seen as selfish, picky, stunted, incomplete, and in a, quote, season when they are single. But no one calls marriage a season. Oh, you're married, you're in a season of marriage right now? <laughs> this too shall pass. Like that is not a thing. Though some people wish they would talk to, about marriage like that. The thing is this, marriage and singleness are both seasons. They, are, they both will not last forever. In your vows, you say, till death do us part. Jesus says, in heaven, you will not be married. You will be married to Christ. You will not be married to the person you're married to. So the fact is marriage and singleness are both seasons, but we typically tend to look at singleness as a season of life that you pass through until you get to the bigger and better thing called marriage. So part of the problem is that church idolizes marriage. And that's real. And we all have to rethink that, which we'll do together in a moment, which is why this teaching is for everyone, not just single people. We all need to hear this. But before we beat up on the church, because it's really easy to beat up on the church, by the way. Like, I'm, I'm really good at beating up on the church. The church is also submerged in a larger context called secular culture or the world or society. And it's important to name this because we're in a culture, church culture, that idolizes marriage. But we're also in a, in a society that idolizes individualism and romanticism. That's really important. You are taught, enculturated, indoctrinated by the idea of romanticism and individualism every single day of your life. Now, I taught on this concept in the sex series, so I won't repeat myself too much here, but I do want to point out some of the defining factors of how this plays out in this area. Here are some defining features of romanticism. We think the highest good of life is to be romantically fulfilled. We can't imagine a life without a romantic partner for ourselves or anyone else. We can't imagine someone living without romantic hope. Everyone, we think, deserves to be in love. Now keep this up there for a second on the screen. These are the defining features of what is called like the afterglow of romanticism. This is all in our DNA. This is all in woven into movies that we watch, into uh, commercials, into media, into whole industries built on love and romance that sell you stuff. We think the highest good of life is to be romantically fulfilled. And to tell someone they can't be romantically fulfilled is like telling them they can't breathe. That's just, that's, that's, the, that's our culture. And thus the assumption in our broader culture is that we can't live without romantic hope. That life without any potential for romantic fulfillment is unfair to demand and unbearable to experience. 
It assumes romantic fulfillment is fundamental to a full and complete life. Okay, this romantic culture is steeped into an extremely individualist culture that thinks whatever feels right to me, as long as it doesn't harm someone, is fine. Actually, it's more than fine, it's your truth. So you are taught to live as an individualist, to live your truth. And what is your truth? Romantic fulfillment. Now, so let's back up. Okay, let's back all the way up. We live within a church culture that idolizes marriage. And that church culture is immersed into a culture, broader culture, that idolizes romance and individual freedom. Are you with me? So what does salvation look like in this narrative? What does it mean to be full, saved, complete? What is the salvation narrative? It goes something like this. If you are someone who goes to church and that church is a part of Western culture, the salvation story for this person goes something like, salvation equals getting married and thus fulfilling the church culture's idea of a full life, but being married by falling romantically in love with someone you choose and who chooses you back, who you end up marrying, and this person doesn't have to be a Christian just as long as you two are compatible. And not just relationally compatible, but sexually compatible. So try out sex a few times to see if it works. And take a few trips together to see if you travel well. All of that stuff. And if it works out romantically, get married and the church will celebrate you in this culture. That's the salvation story. Therefore, if you marry for any other reason than romance, that's wrong. If you don't get married, that's wrong. If you don't have romance, that's wrong. Now, to add one more layer of complexity and depression to this room, <laughs> it's really, really hard to be single today, especially in the church, because those who are single in the church have always been called to, scripturally, in the church, a life of celibacy, which means they are not involved in sexual activity of any kind. This is pornea. We talked about this during sex series. So if you're single, single means not having sex. And gay, basically not married equals not having sex in the church. That's, that's very difficult in our culture. Now, if you step out of the church and you step into the society at large, that saying no to sex or living the celibate life is absurd. So single life in the church is extra complex. I've heard people say, it's mo uh, people ask me, ask me out all the time at work. I get, I get invitations for dates all the time from people that don't go to church, but no one asks me out in the church. Now, there's all kinds of reasons for this. We'll get into this in the dating lecture. We'll get into this in two weeks. But I want to point out one complex layer of this. When you're, in, you're not in the church, you're just in society at large, the stakes are not that high. They're actually pretty low. You can ask out as many people as you want to. You can see if it works. You can sleep with that person if you guys are compatible, if you guys want to hook up. You can, you could, it's really low. And then as long as you respect each other, as long as there's consent, it's all good. So the, 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 the like level of entry is pretty low. In the church, it's a lot higher. Like in the church, like you don't want to send off the wrong signals. You don't want to 
uh, make a mistake with someone in the church. And so there's a lot of added pressure along, which we're hoping to uh, name and try to alleviate in the series. But there's just, in, in, the, in society at large, the, the bar's a little lower. In the church, the bar's higher. That's just the way of Jesus. That's just what it means to follow Jesus. So there is a layer of complexity in the church, and that is true. So if you're in the church, you have this layer of kind of like a purity culture layer, which adds another layer of complexity. Now, I hope that you're starting to see, now that was the end of the cultural water piece. I hope that, that you start to see why it's so freaking hard to be single in the church today. And why married people need to hear this as much as single people. Because we need each other. Someone sent me a DM this past week and said, some single people just need a hug. It's like, can I just get a hug? Like, it's just so, it's so pressurized. Now, that's how pressurized it feels sometimes. Now, before you declare your new ministry hugging single people, <laughs> which will get you excommunicated from this church, let me try to show you what Jesus says about this, all of this craziness and offer some pastoral words to those who are single that married people need to hear as well. Matthew 19. Turn there. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Now, if you've noticed, I've used this text when I taught on marriage. I've used this text when I taught on sex. And I've also used this text now when I'm teaching on singleness, which shows how rich and multifarious the word of Christ is. So listen to Jesus' teaching. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test him and ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now it's important to understand that he's in the region of Judea which is where John the Baptist was beheaded for calling out Herod for living sexually in, in, in a sexually impure life. So right in this place where they know if Jesus says the wrong thing about sex and marriage, he will be beheaded because John the Baptist was. So right when they entered that region is when they start asking Jesus about sex and marriage. So they ask him, and it's, a real, it's all around divorce. And this is what Jesus says. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But this is not the way it was from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. Okay. When you become a Christian, the language that Jesus uses in the Gospels is born again. When you become a Christian, you are born again or you are reborn. It's like a new birth. 
It's like when people who become followers of Jesus, they get baptized. It's water imagery. It's like coming, passing through water again, just like in birth. I don't have to get into the details, but you kind of get it, right? Now, hold on to that. Hold on to the um, imagery of being reborn. Hold on to that for a second. The mandate in the Old Testament was to be fruitful and multiply. So the, one of the reasons to get married and to have sex was to procreate. You can't separate procreation from sex. It's part of the way our bodies were made by God. Even if it doesn't work, even if you have sex and you can have children, that's the way, that's the, the telos of our bodies, the purpose, the design of our bodies. Now, if you want to hear more of that, I taught on this on sex in the body a few weeks ago. Now, being married meant to be fruitful, which is why being married and being barren was such a shameful and horrible thing in the Old Testament. I think of Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel. I think of Sarah, the wife of Abraham. There was like a stigma, a shame stigma attached to it because to be married meant you had to fulfill the cultural, the, the, the biblical mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to have offspring. Here's the thing. The New Testament, in the New Testament, were never given the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Never. Jesus never uses those words. Jesus gives us a new mandate. Make disciples. Okay. What's it called being saved again? Born again. That's the language. You're born again. I hope you, you're starting to, the lights are starting to come on. The New Testament mandate is not to get married, have sex, and make babies and thus be fruitful. The New Testament mandate is to make disciples and thus be spiritual fathers and mothers. That is, some people stoked about that right here. Not so much over there, but right here, there's some really stoked people. The New Testament mandate is to make disciples and become spiritual fathers and mothers. Uh, the, the author of Redeeming Singleness writes, in the New Testament, we are not given any explicit mandate to marry and procreate physical human beings. We are given a new mandate to create more spiritual human beings. Now, you may, okay, so you may be thinking, okay, okay, yay, that's great. <laughs> that doesn't really help take away the ache I have in my heart. That's a really cute theological thing, Pastor. Like, oh yeah, that, but I still have this ache. Now, I, I want to just tell you that I, I know that ache. I know what that feels like. I lived with this, a, a similar ache for like 15 years. Um, when Ashley and I couldn't have kids, I, 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 every Christmas it got worse. Every Christmas I was like, I was full, I was full on depressed. Um, because it was my like dream to, I always wanted in life to wake up my kids to open presents and to see what a baby that, Ashley and I would make together would look like and all that stuff. So I understand. I had a lot of that pain and I understand it. Now, I don't say this part to, to do a whole believe and receive thing. I, that's not my message. My message isn't, hey guys, believe and receive. When people walked up to me like, believe and you'll and receive. Believe, Dave, and you'll have a baby. I don't, that, that wasn't helpful for me. So I'm not going to pass on to you a believe and receive teaching. I don't think that's helpful. Rather, what was helpful for me and what God taught me was to believe and see. 
Not believe and receive, but to believe and see what God was doing in my life. Believe and see where God was working in my life. Believe and see that actually I was fruitful in the New Testament mandate sort of way, making disciples. Like that was like the legacy that God brought me into. So I will say this, even if that portion wasn't helpful for you right now with your ache, I think you still have to wrestle through this as a single person. That this is, this is what I had to do when Ash and I couldn't have children. This, this you have to wrestle through. Our mandate, every single one of us, single or married, is to make disciples, to bring, to find joy in seeing people becoming reborn and becoming spiritual mothers and fathers. We have too easily adopted our idolatry of marriage thinking, I can only have a fulfilled life if I'm married and have kids. Who told you that? That's not true. Those are not the words of Jesus. This is Jesus' church. That's not the way of Jesus. We are to make disciples. I find it strange that we're so happy with our kids, but we don't. When new people come to the faith in Christ, we're like, oh, that's cool, whatever. I hope it lasts, that sort of thing. Like that is not supposed to be our, our posture. Now, if you're married with kids, you don't get out of this mandate, by the way. Making your child, your children disciples of Jesus is part of your mandate, but it's not just that. Now, let's get back to what Jesus says here because Jesus is about to revolutionize the single life. Jesus gives a short teaching on marriage. Okay, I just read it, Matthew 19. Short teaching. He goes back to the book of Genesis, affirms marriage as, as God the creator created it. And when Jesus does this very, very short teaching on marriage, I mean, it was really short. His disciples said to him this. This was the response. This was the feedback to his teaching. Maybe, maybe it's better not to be married. Okay, this can't be lost on you. This can't be lost on us. Jesus gives a teaching on marriage and his disciples, some of whom were married, said, uh, maybe it's better not to be married. Who, uh, who does that? Who, what pastor teaches on marriage and has everyone thinking, maybe I should not be married? <laughs> but this is exactly what Jesus does. And, but what Jesus does next is pretty shocking. When, when they say to him, well, maybe it's better not to be married, Jesus doesn't say, whoa, whoa let's calm down now. Now, I, I didn't mean that. I was kind of joking a little bit, okay? I was kind of getting intense. I'm sorry. Let me back off. Like, you know, some, some of my words are kind of harsh. That's not what I, you heard me wrong. Let me, let me just rephrase this. He doesn't do that. He went on to talk about eunuchs. Now, this is random, I know, but this is a big deal because eunuchs were excluded from the kingdom of God. They, they, kept, they were kept out because they had no right to the blessings of what it meant to be Jewish, they had, which had to do with land, family, and children, Eunuchs were castrated men who went to the service of a master, giving up their possibility of family and a future, tying their future and hope to their master. So they had no right to land or family or offspring. They tied all of their hope to their master. Jesus uses the same language to speak about people who don't get married. Now, this might sound kind of harsh, but what Jesus says here is really profound. Jesus says there are three kinds of eunuchs. One is because of birth, one is a product of the environment, or one is by choice. He says people that, there are some that are born eunuchs, meaning they are either born as intersexed people. Jesus has an awareness of sexual minorities here, different from both male and female. So Jesus here says there are people that are born eunuchs. There are people that are made eunuchs, meaning their environment made them eunuchs. And there's people that chose to be eunuchs in the service of God. The first two categories of eunuchs Jesus makes, he, Jesus names are single involuntarily while the third category is voluntary. 
Jesus says this about the first category. There are people who will not get married because of the way they were born. Making marriage impossible, impossible or inadvisable. Jesus recognizes this reality. There will be people that will be born in a way where marriage is not a possibility for you. The second category are those who are single because of others. Maybe here it could be a lack of an available marriage partner. Some sort of environmental thing creates an atmosphere to where this person can't be married. And the third are those who stay single voluntarily for the sake of serving the king and the kingdom. Now, there are some who won't be married in here because you can't. And this is a very hard word to accept. This is hard to accept because of the romanticism of our culture. That's a layer of it, but that's not everything. It's also hard to accept because romanticism aside, we all have this sexed longing, if you remember that from a few weeks ago. We have this sexed longing to be reconnected, to be with someone that is outside the idolatry and commodification of our culture, something that's not a part of that, just a part of being human. Like I have a sexed reality, a torn reality that I want to be connected with another human person. And that's real. But what I love about Jesus is that he doesn't lie to you. He was a single man his whole life. He was the greatest, wisest, most fully human person who ever lived and he never married. But he acknowledged that this is difficult to accept. There are some people who are not married because of a lack of someone who will marry you or an available marriage partner. And Jesus acknowledges that too. And there are some of you remaining single for the sake of the kingdom of God. And, and for you, this is for your life, this is better than marriage. The point is this. Jesus revolutionizes what it means to be single by saying they're all full members of, of, of the citizen of God the, or the kingdom of God. They're all full citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, you may be thinking, okay, Jesus teaching on eunuchs, not helpful. Just not helpful. I'm single. You just taught on eunuchs. That's not helpful for me. But I want you to see what Jesus does. To a culture, Jewish, that not only idolized marriage and family, they made it essential to being human and to bring and being obedient to God. It was the only way blessings from God came into your life. Right? So the New Encyclopedia of Judaism under celibacy reads this. Marriage is a commandment in Jewish tradition and celibacy is to be deplored. So in this culture that celebrated marriage and celibacy was deplorable, into that culture, Jesus says, the single life is fully lived and fully a part of God's kingdom. You're full on in. There is no like season of waiting so you can be a full member of God's kingdom. There's not this single of incompleteness that you have. You don't have to become the right person to find the right person sort of thing. That's not what Jesus teaches on, on singleness. He says, you are a full, for whatever reason you are single, you are a full-fledged member of the kingdom of God. Once, once this whole category of person was excluded, I bring you in. You are full on in the kingdom of God. Now, you may be thinking, okay, that's great. Thank you but I don't have the gift of singleness. Now I want to talk about this because I hear this all the time. Like Dave, I'm single. I just don't have the gift of singleness. 
So I want to talk about this for a second, okay? Some people think that singleness is a gift, as in like a spiritual gift that some people possess and others don't. How do you know if you possess the, the gift of singleness? Do you want to be single? No, then you don't have the gift. That's what they think, right? <laughs> I don't have the gift. If I wanted to be single, I would have the gift, okay? Now, here's where they get this, this idea from. 1 Corinthians 7, 7. Paul is teaching on marriage. The whole context is marriage. I wish that all of you were as I am. Paul was single. He's like, I wish you were all, he's not saying I wish you were all uh, a Jewish reformed in the way of Jesus male in his like mid forties. He's not saying that. He's like, I wish all of you were as I am, I'm single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. This is where you get marriage or singleness as a gift. It's really funny that those who don't seem to like Paul or what he writes in his letters think that this verse is their life verse, but whatever. <laughs> Let's talk about this verse for a second. Paul has just been talking about marriage, specifically the obligation married people have to serve one another sexually. It's a whole different teaching. We've taught it before. Go, go back and listen to the audio. When he says that he wishes that all of you were as I am, he means that he wishes that everyone was single. He wishes that because there are certain advantages as a follower of Jesus that you have as a single person. You're fully devoted to the things of God. Paul says when you're married, you're devoted partly to the things of the world. What Paul is saying is that he wishes all believers were single to devote themselves completely to Christ. But he also acknowledges that that's not how God has ordered and arranged all things. Because each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that gift. Okay, so what does that mean? One has this gift, what's this gift? Singleness. Another has that gift, what's that gift? Marriage. That's what, he's, not, he's not naming all the gifts. He's, just, he's, he's not using things as spiritual gifts. He's saying one has this gift, singleness. One has that gift, marriage. He's not like one has this gift, singleness. The other one had that one, martyrdom. The other one has that one, whatever. He doesn't do that. He's like some have this gift, singleness. Some have that, marriage. And the point is this. They are both gifts. Marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. One has this gift, marriage. One has this gift, singleness. Singleness is not a special gift and you don't, you don't have to have the gift of singleness to be single. We tend to treat singleness like a superpower that you have from God. If you can be happy and joyful and completely devoted to God as a single person, you must have the gift. If you are lonely and sad and burning with passion, you must not have the gift. That, where did, I don't even know where that came from. That's not what Paul is saying. In Paul's writing... He always uses the word gift to mean an ability God gives to build others up. Amen. Always. So when you have the gift of singleness, he's saying you have, just think of the, the, the word gift. He says you have this gift not for yourself, but for other people. That's what it is. Okay. Paul is not speaking of some kind of elusive stress-free state. Now, is being single hard? Yeah. Is being married hard? Yeah. yeah. Being human's hard. Like, however you, you go about it, being human's hard. Now, gifts, the, the, if you have the gift of being single, meaning you're single and that's a gift, you are in a state of life to serve Christ's body. That's what you're there for. 
If you are married and that's a gift, you have that to serve Christ's body well. That's what that means. Now, the problem with thinking that singleness is a special gift is that it can lead to some major disobedience and faulty thinking. Here's why. So Paul, right in that very next verse, talks about it's, if you burn with passion, it's better to be married. So what people do is they kind of um, use Paul's teaching on singleness. They think, one, it has to be a special gift. Two, if I burn with passion, I don't have the gift. Therefore, God must have got something wrong. God got something wrong. And all of a sudden, you're a Calvinist that believes in meticulous sovereignty. That's what happens with you. Do you believe that God gives people cancer? Do you believe that God, like, controls every single thing in the world and makes every bad, evil thing? You have, you have to go back and listen to the year of biblical literacy when we taught on um, the problem of evil. When you start to say, I don't have the gift of singleness and I burn with passion for other people, therefore, I should, God did something wrong in me. You're blaming God for something that, that you, 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 get, you get into theological trouble when you do that. When we see singleness as a special gift, we think God has something, got something wrong, and the answer is to reject the idea that you have the gift of singleness and therefore should either disobediently date or have sex or whatever, and you blame it on God. I had no other choice. I had, God, I didn't have any choice. I don't have the gift, and I burn with passion. Of course I'm going to do this. It's not my fault. This is how you made me. And you should have made me different. I'm sorry you did that. Whatever. It's your fault. That's what we do with these verses. That is, that, that is not the instruction that Paul is getting at. And thus, you put God in a situation where there is no possibility to, or you put yourself in a situation where there's no possibility to obey God. It's not my fault. It's God's. And I can't obey him. What he's given me is too hard. Being single is not a special superpower. If you're single, you're called to use your singleness to serve God in the state that you're in to serve God. Now, we're going to unpack all of this. I know this is like pot, mainly theologically heavy because I have to do that kind of theological work first and then we'll get into implications later. But let me just um, try to land this plane with some pastoral stuff here. So what I've been trying to do is trying to name culturally where we're at, talk about idolatry, talk about the idolatry in our city and idolatry in our world, um, give you the fact that Jesus brings us all in, single or married, um, try to dislodge some faulty thinking around gift of singleness and burning with passion as an excuse to disobey God. But I also want to give some pastoral stuff here. First, is to say this, singleness is not second best. If you're here and you're like, I'm single and it's just like the best would be to be married and singleness is like second best. All of life and all of Christian life is about channeling our desires as single people, married people, widowed, divorced, gay, straight, bisexual, or eunuchs of any kind in ways that bring life and God's kingdom to bear on the world. That is spiritual development. That is the spiritual life. How do I take everything that I have because of uh, life and family of origin and the disordered world and the beautiful things and 
take all of that stuff that I am and own it completely and then channel it in life-giving ways. That is what following Jesus is all about. Now, if you are here for like a self-care, self-help care thing, you probably should go get a mindfulness coach. That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is demand, he demands your whole life. I mean, Jesus' way is very narrow. Just he says it himself. It's like the way that leads to life is narrow. The way that leads to destruction is broad. Jesus' way of life is very narrow. But he also says his way of life is true life. But the entryway, the gateway is the denial of self, the loss of yourself to truly find yourself. The second thing I'll say is this. Married people must find ways to fold single people into our lives. We must find ways to expand our lives to fold single people. Allow them to be ants and uncles and godparents and emergency contacts. I, a friend of mine told me when she was asked to be an emergency contact for a friend, uh, a friend's kid at their school, she felt like she was a full-fledged family member of that, of that family. Usually, like, married people get that responsibility because they somehow seem a little bit more together. <laughs> but single people don't get asked for that kind of stuff. Because we think, oh, we don't put that burden on their single people. They're single for a reason. That's not true. <laughs> that's, that, that's real. We, that, that honestly is what people think. What I found very helpful this last week, even just asking people on social media what you would tell the church, I found that people said, things that conflicted. And some people said, it's, it means a lot to me that people in my community uh, are, are like, keep me in mind when they meet someone they think I would like. That means a lot to me. Another person said, I would wish my, single, my married people stopped trying to set me up. <laughs> like, what do I say? Um, and this is why I think it's good. Ask people in your community about their single life. Don't you sit around and like people ask you about, hey, how's marriage? That's like a common question. Hey, how's marriage going? How's your marriage going? How's it? Do you ever sit down with someone like, hey, how's your single life going? <laughs> ask them about that. Bring them in. Like, how's, how, how is it? Is there anything, is there, is there any way that, that I could, um, that we can be, can we can serve you? Any way that we can share life together? Is there any way that we can be involved in this part of your life? Like, ask them. This is really, really important. Uh, I think married couples in our, our church, this is the challenging thing that I'm, I'm finding. If we really start holding Jesus' sexual ethic real in our lives, this will demand a lot from married couples that think, oh, I'm so out of, glad I'm out of that world. I don't think about, think about that world anymore. We actually have to step back into this place and like make room, have them move into our homes, uh, make communal living a thing, like fold them into our family, um, not just bail during all the holidays because we're like, oh, we're leaving the city because we're going over here. Like be mindful and don't just throw like friend parties like two weeks after Thanksgiving. Like they're still here during Thanksgiving and alone. Like find ways to stay put and go, we're, we're here and we're family. You're my family, like that sort of thing. So four of you that stick around, thank you. I guess what I'm saying is this, and this is hard, and, and these teachings, I, I, to, I, I told you at the end of this year this was get demanding. Following Jesus in San Francisco is a demanding thing. It demands a lot from your marriage. 
It'll demand a lot from your single life. It'll demand a lot from your community. It'll demand a lot from your sexual, it'll demand from your money, your time. Like it's just, we haven't even gotten to poverty, like serving the poor yet. That's next year. I mean, you, you're like, how much more? But this is it. This is like what, this is, Jesus wants our life. So married people, open your, your marriage up. Open your life up. Um, fold in people that are single and make them uh, full-fledged family members of your, of your family. Um, single people, don't put your life on hold. Don't put your life on hold waiting for some romantic fulfillment. What are you waiting for? Like, get involved in what God's doing, his kingdom, his work. Make disciples. Make, like, born-again babies in Christ. Uh, get involved in Alpha uh, that we started. Find people that need to get involved in um, our, like, our Alpha ministry and, like, pour yourself into that. Um, single pe- I'll talk more about this in two weeks. Single people set up boundaries as single people. Because you're single doesn't mean, you know, if you ask me, hey, can you come and do this thing for me? I'm like, I can just say this. Oh, I'm, I'm, I just had a baby. You'd be like, oh, sorry. Totally. Or before I had that, I'm like, oh, my Ashley, you know, my wife, introvert. No, can't do it. <laughs> but when you're single, you're like, oh, no, I can't. <laughs> like, it feels like you can't, you can't like set up boundaries, right? And you're like, oh, no, what do you, what do you, you got nothing going on, you're single. Like that sort of thing. That, single people need to guard their, put up really healthy boundaries. And we'll talk about that more, like cultivating the single life in two weeks. So set up personal boundaries are really, really important. Um, last thing I want to share, actually two more things and I'm done. Feeling alone and feeling lonely are two different things. Loneliness is a human condition. It's a thing that happens that grips your chest and crowds your mind. It's an emotion. It doesn't matter who you are with or what you are doing, loneliness like takes your breath away. You can't shake it. No matter if you're having the most fun with your favorite people, you still feel lonely. Loneliness hits single people and married people and people who have just lost someone they love, people that have three kids or no kids. Loneliness grips us. It's actually an epidemic in our society today. Loneliness. It's different though from being alone. Being alone is something different. Being alone is not a feeling as much as it's a state of being. For the follower of Jesus, you are never alone, ever. You have, first of all, the Holy Spirit who lives in you. You're never alone. And you should, and we need, Jesus' community. Now, what if you feel alone? What if loneliness kind of grips you because you're alone? Let's say you're making a recipe and it calls for two people and you're cooking it for yourself and this loneliness starts to grip your heart. That's a real thing. Loneliness starts gripping you like, oh, I live alone. Oh, I have like a lot of leftovers. Like, oh, I, that's real, right? It grips you. It's really good when you feel, when, when your awareness of being alone starts to dip, like dip you into loneliness, it's really good to stop and to ask yourself where this is coming from. Ask, where is this coming from and what's the invitation of God? In what ways can I channel this feeling right now? Maybe it's a choice to opt into community. Maybe that night you said no to something that Jesus wanted you to say no to and you're having a bit of FOMO right at that moment. 
You're at home and, they're, and it's good to channel and to step into that to go, what am I feeling? I'm feeling this, I have to always be distracted and I can't be alone with God. Maybe Jesus wants me for himself tonight. Maybe that. Or maybe you said no to community because you're hiding. And now you're at home alone. You're like, and God's like, what, what, are, you, what are you hiding for? Why are you at home hiding? And that feeling of being alone. And this, by the way, this can happen in marriage, but I'm just zeroing in, double clicking on singleness here. It's so good to stop and ask, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? And, 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 and maybe for you it's choosing community, choosing to reach out, choosing to be invited in, choosing to tell someone in your community, hey, I kind of feel, I'm, I'll let you know Friday night, it's my birthday, going to feel kind of alone, love for a few people just to get together to hang out. Like, that's okay to throw that out there, and the community should tr make room for you, Amen. right? Um, and it's really good to keep an eye out for those who are alone. When you start thinking like this, start looking for people that Satan might want to isolate um, and just kind of completely try to destroy by being alone. Okay, this is where I'll honestly end, I promise. So I had a lot to say on this and a lot more coming, but let me read this text to you. 1 Corinthians uh, 7.29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. You're like, wait, that's in the Bible? <laughs> those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who, are, who buy something as if they were not theirs to keep. Those who use things of the world as if not engrossed in them for this world in its present form is passing away. This text is money. This is so good. Here's Paul's whole point. Paul is not discouraging buying and selling. Paul is not discouraging marriage. Paul is not discouraging mourning or being happy. As Christians who live in this world, we are expected to continue doing such things. But as followers of Jesus, we do not buy to possess. We do not buy to possess a life. We do not marry to find an identity. We do not mourn like those without hope. We are not happy. We are happy, but not as those who live for the pursuit of happiness. We are single, but not as those who have no family. All because the kingdom of God has broken in, it changes everything. So for the Christian, we live, we live in the world, but as if not, they do not give us an identity. As if these things do not determine my identity, my existence. So if you're single, to live as if not means to live as if I don't derive an identity from being single. To live as marriage, I don't derive an identity and meaning from being married. Buying, I don't buy to possess. What happens is that because everything is passing away. Your marriage could be gone like that. Someone could die like that. Your singleness could be over like that. Like the things that you have in this life can be burned up like that. Paul's saying place all your hope on things that are fixed. Because this world in its present form is passing away. And when, it, when things pass away, they give us anxiety. They give us deep anxiety. When we try to pull our hope in romance and we don't know if it's going to work out or not, we get anxiety. We put our hope in a home or a job and we don't know if it's permanent or not, we get anxiety. And Paul's saying, place your hope squarely on things that are eternal and your anxiety starts to regulate itself. Our identity as followers of Jesus is that our identity is in Christ and none of these other things truly define us. They're, they're, they're part of us, but they don't truly, truly define us. 
Would you stand and let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would minister to people right now. I, I want to pray specifically for people who are single. There are, might be those that because they're new to the city and they're just so enamored with like the city and friends that they don't even think about being single at all. That's not something that hits them. There are others that have been here for a while. They've seen their friends get married. They've been to all their weddings. They've bought all the dresses and all the tuxedos and all that stuff. And they're just so exhausted. They're so, they're so tired. I pray you would have your grace is sufficient for both. For every single person here, I pray your peace, God, your love, your vision for the kingdom of God, your vision in their life, in their hearts, activate something, activate evangelists in here, activate people who pour out their entire lives for the sake of Jesus. Um, would you bring uh, a holiness in here, set people apart for you, Lord. Um, I pray for married people that we would begin to fold in uh, single people into our lives as full members of God's kingdom and active parts of it. And we need each other, God. Help us to operate well together. I pray for married couples who only have married friends. I pray that we, you, you would just confront us with that and we would expand our friendship circle. For single people that only have single friends, expand our friendship circle, God. Make us a real, true, living community, God. We need this, Lord. Isolation is horrible. It's satanic. Don't allow us to be isolated. We are not alone. We have your spirit. We have each other. I pray that you would tear down walls in here that divide us, tear down walls that keep us from each other and bring us into full unity with your spirit and one another. You prayed that we'd be one as you are one. The things that in our culture, and our world that divide us, especially in this room, would you tear them down and make us one in Jesus' name.